The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Good morning. I'd like you to turn with me to Luke chapter 9, if you would. Let me read the text first and we'll pray. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 51. We're going to read down to verse 16 in chapter 10. Luke 9, verse 51. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. (laughs) That's an amazing statement. When the days were approaching for his ascension back to the Father, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Why? Well, because that's where he was going to be crucified. That was the last, that's why he came to the earth. That was the thing, the last thing was going to take place in his life before he was put in a tomb and then raised from the dead and ascended back to the Father. And he sent messengers on ahead of him because they're going from up in the north down to Jerusalem. He said he sent messengers ahead of him and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him, a place to stay for the night. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. The Samaritans and the Jews were not friends. And so the fact that he was headed for Jerusalem meant that they wouldn't allow him to stay in their village. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And he turned and he rebuked them. There's brackets here. Let me explain what these brackets are about in your text. It's because these are, this, last, this statement here that I'm about to read are not found in the earliest manuscripts that we have come to have of the New Testament. But Jesus says, in essence, the same thing elsewhere, which we'll see in just a minute. But Jesus says to them, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come, he's talking about his first coming, he did not come into the world to destroy men's lives, but to save them. See, these, were, these guys were um, like a lot of Christians today. We're ready to do away with certain people because we don't like them. And Jesus explained to his disciples, I didn't come to the world, into the world to destroy, but to save. And he's about to go to die for these people <laughs> that they want to bring fire down on. And they went on to another village. As they went, going along the road, someone said to him, to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord. But first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. 
Now, those of you who grew up on a farm know what a tragedy that would be to put your hand to the plow and then look back, and you would uh, cut a very bad ditch if you did that. Now, after this, the Lord appointed 70. 70 besides the 12. He appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs, two by two, ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come on his way to Jerusalem. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go, behold, I send you as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet the one on the, and don't greet the one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. If a, quite literally, if a son of peace, a person of peace, a person who is going to end up being right with God is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in the house eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you. And heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. They could see its power at work as those people were healed. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the street and say, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Yet, this, yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in, the, in that day, that is the day of judgment, for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. These are cities that Jesus had gone to and performed miracles demonstrated the power of the kingdom of God, and yet they didn't believe in him. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which were occurred to you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, that was his headquarters. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? you will be brought down to Hades. The one who listens to you listens to me, he's saying to his disciples. You represent me. And so when you bring this message to them, it's as though I am speaking to them. And for them to reject you, they are rejecting me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me, the Father. Really strong words. But you gotta understand the context. Jesus is headed for Jerusalem where he is going to die on a cross for sinners like us. And he's going to provide our salvation through his own substitutionary atonement in our place. What we're looking at today is the way of the master. Um, The way of the master is the way of the cross. 
Think of this historical situation. Jesus is calling these people, and some of them are saying, I want to follow you, but just let me go do this first. And what they don't get yet is following Jesus is going to be following him to Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified. And you know the story. You've read it in the Gospels. Disciples distance themselves from him at this point. Let me pray that God would bring home the message of this text to our hearts. Our Father, we are grateful that we can gather like this. What an amazing thing that we just have this freedom to gather together in Jesus' name, to sing praises to him, to hear his message, and to share it with one another. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit would bring this message to our heart, open the eyes of our heart that we can see the glory of Christ. Bring us to repentance and faith and obedience, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here is the way of the Master, the way of the cross. Now, this passage I just read to you is so foreign to so many Christians because it sounds too... Well, we would... I heard a lot of people, they would call this legalistic because Jesus is telling it like it is. There's a day of judgment coming. And these people who have seen God manifest his mighty power, the power of the kingdom through Jesus, and yet refuse to bow the knee and put faith in him are headed for a day of judgment. And the amazing thing is Jesus takes no delight in it. Even when his disciples want to bring fire down on a city, he says, you don't even understand. I didn't come to destroy. I came to save. You don't know what kind of spirit you have, he says to them. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. In John chapter 12, verse 47, Jesus says, If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. What? He says, If anyone hears, if any man hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge them. Why? For I did not come to judge the world. He's talking about his first coming. He's coming again. Second Thessalonians 1 says he's coming again for judgment. But he came the first time to save lives. And from the time of his first coming until the time of his second coming is a period of time in which we are told that God has reconciled himself to the world so that anyone can hear the gospel. You can go anywhere in the world today and take the gospel message. And you have the authority to say to people, Jesus Christ died for sinners. If you put your faith in him, he will save you, forgive you, and make you a member of his family. And so we have this great period of time between the first and second coming of Christ. We don't know how much longer it's going to be. You'll have people all over the place telling you it's happening next week. We don't know when it's happening. But one thing for sure, this is a period of time in where to take the gospel to the world, to give them the message of Jesus Christ. But when he came the first time, he didn't come to judge. He came to be judged in our place, to die for our sins. amazing to me um, when he begins this text and back in verse 51 when the days were were appear, approaching for his ascension this, this was really gets me the days were approaching for his ascension that is his going back to the father 
But he says, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem is where his disciples know this. This is why they're so upset that he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to be arrested and tried and beaten and hung on a cross. And yet he understands that before he goes back to the Father, he has to go to Jerusalem and be hung on a cross and die for us. Take our place. Pay the penalty for our sin. Give us a basis of salvation. Isn't that amazing? He's wanting to go to Jerusalem because of this. Listen to this. This is Isaiah 50. This is a, Isaiah 50 verse 7 is a prophetic word about Jesus Christ. And this is what Isaiah wrote. For the Lord God helps me. These are like the words of Jesus. He's saying this of the Messiah. For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. You say, wait a minute, wasn't he disgraced? They beat him to a pulp, they stripped him naked, and then hung him on a cross. They despised him, they spit upon him. Wasn't he disgraced? No, what he's talking about, God is going to vindicate me. Because God the Father is going to raise him from the dead. And when he was raised from the dead, it was a clear testimony that what Jesus did on the cross was for us. And he's been raised from the dead. And then he he goes on to say, Therefore I have set my face like flint. Do you know what that's like? He set his face like flint. He couldn't turn from this. He was going to this destination. I set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. I know that he's going to vindicate me. Therefore I'm willing to die in the place of my people. Get the New Testament uh, record of this as Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. That was because it was at a higher elevation. They were coming from the north and going south, but it was a higher elevation, so they're going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. Why are they amazed? He's headed for his death, and they know it. They know he's going to be arrested. They know he's going to be turned on. They don't know exactly how bad it's going to be. And so they're amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the 12 aside, and he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. And you heard that this morning in the reading. Jesus tells them what's going to happen to them. At the end of chapter 9, what Jesus does here, and what Luke gives us this record of Jesus' words, He groups together three incidents concerning the people who are interested in Jesus' way, that is, following Jesus. Jesus, we're told three times here in in verse 57, 59, and 61, follow, follow, follow. They're wanting to follow Jesus. And so Jesus gives them a little reality therapy. They don't know what they're asking. They want to follow Jesus. And, when, uh, and so what he does in these three places, he gives us some really important truth about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. When you come to believe on Christ, you become a disciple of Jesus. You may be sitting here thinking, I'm a believer, but I'm not a disciple. I don't want to get all serious about it. Now, let me tell you, when you put faith in Christ, you become his disciple. And you are called to follow him. Now, notice these three things. These are glorious truths. They're really helpful to us. They're not always what we want to hear. But in verse 7, he's going to tell this man, you have to count the cost before you begin to follow him. 
As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. I mean, I don't mind getting a hotel. And I'll bring my baggage and all my clothes. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Nowhere to lay his head. You want to follow me? Be ready. This is what it's going to cost you. And you know what it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you everything, is what he's telling him. Following following him may cost you your life. That happened several times in the Gospels when someone began to follow Jesus and ends up costing them their life. But the second word that he gives to the second person in verse 59 is be ready to be misunderstood. If you begin to follow Jesus, sir, some people are going to misunderstand you. Listen to what he says. He said to another, Jesus says to this man, follow me. But he said in response, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. We don't know. You know, there's all kinds of theories. Well, his dad wasn't even sick, so he's talking about maybe in 10 years I could follow you because my father will have died by then and I'll have received my inheritance. We don't know. He just says, let me go and bury my father. Maybe his father had already died. Verse 60, but he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. That doesn't sound cruel. (laughs) That sounds, man, alive. This is amazing. Let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. How important is this to be a follower of Jesus anyway? God says it's the most important thing in all of life. There's nothing that you can compare it to, to be a follower of Jesus. And then the third man in verse 61, Jesus tells him you have to be single-minded. So you have to count the cost, be ready to be misunderstood as you follow Christ by those who are not following him. That's why Jesus said, I'll turn you against your mother and father and sister and brother. If you don't hate your mother, father, sister, brother in your own life, you can't be my disciple. What do you mean by that? You have to start hating people? No. You have to decide that this is your life. You're going to follow Christ. You're going to follow him, and it may cost you everything. It may cost you everything. And so in verse 61, he tells this man, another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to the people at my home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow, And looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 14, verse 26 says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. What what he means by that is, it's going to cost you everything because that's what Satan wants to do to you. He wants you to to, to experience the pain of being a disciple of Jesus Christ by the whole world rejecting you. And so Jesus says, you have to make up your mind. You have to be single-minded about this. Is this the most important thing in the world? Some of you are sitting here thinking, man, what is all this anyway? Well, let me tell you, this is the most important thing in all the world to be a follower of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that compares with it. Jesus Christ is the one who brought everything into existence. Everything came into existence through him, and apart from him, nothing has come into existence that has come into existence. And he has chosen to save us, to bring us into a right relationship with him, to remove the alienation, 
in our spiritual deadness and bringing us into the family of God. And now he wants us to follow him. And so he's telling them, this is what you have to do. You have to count the cost, be ready to be misunderstood, and be single-minded. This is the one thing in life that is the most important. And you won't be a disciple. You can't be a disciple. You will, it will be miserable for you unless you come to this place. So the way of the master takes precedence over everything else. Sounds crazy until you experience it, until you come to have a relationship with Christ. Often God tests the earnestness of, of men's hearts like this by bringing them to this fork in the road. Am I going to go this way because this, this is the best way for me? Or am I going to go Christ's way? And we come up against this all the time. And the, the Bible says he, God does this so that we would learn to trust him completely. Remember what Jesus did when he called Levi the tax gatherer. This is Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After that, he went. This is, not, this is not connected. This is way before what we're looking at today. But listen how Jesus did this. He said, after he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. That'd be like a guy sitting in the booth to go across the Bay Bridge. Only this is a tax collector. You have to pay your taxes. He says he sees him sitting there. His name was Levi, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. He goes up and he says, follow me. What do you think they would say if you did that through the, as you're going across the Bay Bridge? If you rolled up to the booth and you said, follow me. They'd say, pull over. We're going to tow your car. But Jesus says to him, follow me. And get this, get this. He left everything behind, got up, and began to follow Jesus. What in the world's going on? Well, it's a supernatural work. It's the power of God. His heart was captured at that moment, and he was willing to leave everything and follow Jesus. That's what happens to disciples. That's why all true disciples follow Jesus, because he has called you, and you have responded, and the Spirit of God continues to put this in your heart, that the primary goal of your life is to follow Jesus. Now, what happens in the next section is the way of his witnesses. This is, we've just looked at the way of his followers, but, you know, being a disciple includes two things. First, it includes following him, living for him, and secondly, it includes witnessing for him. It includes being a spokesman for Jesus. And you're saying, wait a minute, I got the follow stuff. I think I could do that because I can keep my mouth shut. But I can't be a witness. And after all, doesn't Peter say that some believers have a speaking gift and some believers have a serving gift? I've got a serving gift. I can't open my mouth. Well, you might remember what, what God said to Moses when Moses used that excuse. I can't speak. And God says to him, who made your mouth? Who is it that formed the mouth? Who is it that gave you the ability to speak? God. Can he use you as a spokesman? Well, it says that he does. You're an ambassador of Christ. Every believer is. And he expects you to speak for him. He doesn't expect you to get up and give speeches to crowds. He only does that to inflict cruel and unusual punishment to some of us. 
But you have to be able to speak. Guess what you're supposed to say when somebody says to you, I hear you're a Christian. Why are you a Christian? What are you supposed to say? The reason I like to quote Bob Dylan, when he went through his Christian phase, he talked like a believer. He said, he said, he wrote a song to unbelievers and says, the guys that were giving him a bad time, I don't know if you remember, Joan Baez hated him after this because she couldn't stand the fact he became a Christian. He wrote this song, he says, you think you have something better, you have a heart of stone. Your heart hasn't been opened up yet. Because when your heart's opened up, you want to follow Christ. And so to those who are to speak for him, which is every believer, to be his heralds, the word herald means to proclaim, to witness, to bear witness of the truth of who Christ is. Jesus speaks in terms of three things. Notice, first labor, verse 2, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The word labor means to work hard. It's to exert energy. And so he says, he calls it labor that he's calling us to for speaking for him. The second thing in verse 3 is danger. Go, go, he says, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Are there going to be people that are going to give you a bad time for being a witness for Jesus Christ? Oh, you bet you, they will. There are going to be people against you speaking out for Jesus Christ. In England, Christians in England, if they speak about Jesus publicly, they're called Christers, and it's a very derogatory term. For you to actually have the audacity to open your mouth and talk about Jesus Christ in public is a great offense. Not standing before a great crowd, but simply in a restaurant talking to somebody and telling them about Jesus. He says... I'm sending you as lambs in the midst of wolves. And then third, he says, it's something you have to have single-mindedness, just like with following him. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. It's kind of like Jesus set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. Nothing was going to detract him from that. And he says, you have to be the same way. You have to be committed to speak for him when he gives you opportunity. You don't make the opportunities. In fact, if you notice what he tells them, we are to be straightforward in our proclamation of this good news of the kingdom. Notice verse 5. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, a son of peace would be somebody who is headed for peace with God. That's what that expression would mean, a son of peace. So it's somebody who receives the gospel. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in the house eating and drinking what they give you for the laborers worthy of his wages. It's labor. Back in 1900, there was a group of people that uh, where they were in a revival and they decided they were going to go to the world, around the world to take the gospel. And so they, all, they got one-way tickets and they went to all kinds of places in the world to become witnesses for Christ. Some of them were greatly disappointed. But they did have the right idea in this sense, that God has called you to be a witness on the way. Now, these men were going to follow Jesus to Jerusalem. It was a dangerous place. It'd be kind of like going into a very dangerous area because, they, because the rulers in Jerusalem wanted to try Jesus and to condemn him, and they were going to crucify him and beat him mercilessly. And all the disciples fled, except one. And so, yes, it can be dangerous. 
But guess what? You're supposed to be single-minded. He says the house that they are, to, when you go into a house. Now, it's a little different now. If you wandered into a village around here, let's say you went over to, uh, you know, Byron or something. You walk in the middle of Byron and you're waiting for somebody to invite you into their home. You might have a long wait. In Israel at this time, if you went into a small village, a stranger, you're traveling, you go into a village, it would not be unusual for someone to say, where are you from? And you tell them, and you, you tell them where you're traveling, and say, well, come stay with us. And they bring you into their home, they f- give you a meal, and they give you a bed. And so Jesus tells them what to do. But what they have to remember is they have to be single-minded. They are there to bear witness of Jesus Christ. That's why he has put them there. Why in the world has God put you where he has put you? To bear witness. He's put the people in your life that he wants you to bear witness to. Now, you don't have to get crazy to do that. You simply have to be faithful to bear witness to who Jesus really is. That's what he called you to do. And so he says to them, you know, stay in this house. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter... And they receive you, eat what is said before you, and heal those in it who are sick. Now, I'm not saying you have the gift of healing, but what was happening here was the kingdom of God was being manifest through power. Jesus sent them out to preach the gospel of the kingdom, that the king had come near. And he had proven that he was the king by the demonstration of his kingdom power. He healed the sick and raised the dead. And they knew the stories. All they have to do is go and report what had actually happened. And to tell them that the kingdom of God has come close to you. But then Jesus says, whatever city you enter and they do not receive... You don't just keep battering them. You don't just keep saying, you got to believe, you got to believe, you got to believe. He says, no, move on. But let them know that because they won't receive this gospel, that you're, you, you, you shake the dust off your feet. In other words, you're serious about this message. He says, I say to you, it would be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city who rejects Jesus came so close. Imagine this. Jesus came from the third heaven all the way down to earth, and he lived in this little country of Israel, walked the roads. Here was the, the manifest presence of God. This was the Shekinah glory. That was what they called in the Old Testament when there was a physical manifestation of the presence of God. Jesus was that physical manifestation of God. They saw Jesus, and they saw God manifest his mighty power through Jesus, and they rejected him. Now, you're not going to be able to perform miracles, but you have the same Jesus in you. And the amazing thing, just like many of us have experienced before, we see people just supernaturally believe the gospel. Their eyes are opened by the Spirit of God, and they see it, and they want him. They want to believe on him. And we have to be faithful to deliver the message. And then what happens is... Jesus sends out these 70 men. Why? What is this all about? He sent out the 12, and now he's going to send out 70. Well, if you were to go to Revelation 21, in verses 12 and 14, it says that in the New Jerusalem, there's going to be 12 gates, and those gates are going to be named after the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 patriarchs, the 12 sons of Jacob. 
And then two verses later, verse 14, it says that there's going to be 12 foundation stones with the 12 apostles' names upon them. And then the, so he's, he's basically it's picturesque. It's obviously referring back to the fact that God's people in the Old Testament were made up of 12 tribes. In the New Testament, we are made up of a great variety of people, but there were 12 apostles in the beginning who were the eyewitnesses, and that's what we preach. We preach their report that Jesus was raised from the dead. What about the word 70, that, that term? Well, this is the number of people in Israel who went into Egyptian bondage. You remember when, when they went down to Egypt to find deliverance, it, there were 70 of them. And then when they came out of Israel, the elders among the people of Israel were 70. And so probably these numbers are just indicating this is for the people of God. This isn't just for these people in the first century. It's for me and it's for you. That this is kind of attitude we are to have. We are to recognize that this is labor. And that is, there is danger in it. <laughs> and that we have to be single-minded. And we have to be straightforward in the proclamation of the truth of the gospel, that there is life in Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, I just want to tell you from the bottom of my heart, there is nothing, there is no, nothing that can compare with this when you come to have your eyes open to the glory of who Christ really is and to receive life from him. The New Testament testifies that the life, eternal life, the very life of God is in Christ Jesus. And if you receive Christ Jesus, you receive his life. You can have eternal life. All of you have heard John 3.16 or seen it on, at some football game. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, that is be destroyed for that which you were created, but have eternal life, a relationship with the living God. And so we have to be serious about bearing witness to this truth. Do you know anyone, do you know any person who needs Christ? You know any person that needs Christ in your life? I mean, that you know you have some kind of relationship with? Of course you do. And guess why you're where you're at in this world? It's because God has placed you there and you're to bear witness for him. If you don't know him, he wants you to come to know him. And once you come to know him, he will use you to bear witness for who Jesus Christ is. Not necessarily that you're gonna speak to a big group of people, but you're going to speak to somebody. It's really fascinating in the New Testament. I've been thinking a lot about prayer lately. And in the New Testament, it always pictures prayer as in community. We pray in community. You know the Lord's Prayer, right? It doesn't say, my Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Give me this day my daily bread. It doesn't say that, does it? It's corporate. He's telling his disciples to pray together like this. Our Father in heaven, we, we recognize his glory when we pray. We acknowledge who he is. We have reverence for him. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then we begin to ask him as a, as a community, as we pray together, in fact, the Bible says, First Peter says, because we're living in the last days, we should all be alert and sober for the purpose of getting together to pray. Getting together to pray. You ever have people over just to pray? I grew up in a house that that would happen a lot. 
is uh, all of a sudden some people would show up and they got they came there to pray. I didn't even know it. I was just a little kid, and I used to watch through the door as they prayed together. But that's how we're supposed to do it. We're so we're supposed to pray in community. So we're supposed to keep our hearts alert and our minds alert so that we can pray together. Well, you extend that out. Think of all the people you know outside of Christianity, outside of the church of Jesus Christ, people who don't know Christ, and you're the witness. You're you're the witness. Everybody's wanting to know who the two witnesses are. Well, let me tell you who one of the witnesses are of the many that there are. It's you, Christian. It's you. You've been placed where you're at in order to bear witness to the reality of who Christ is. And I, I love this. When, remember when Jesus sent the demoniac that he had cast the demons out of, of Gedaria, and the guy wanted to go with Jesus back over to, uh, to the city he came from, and, and Jesus said, no, you go home. You go to your home, and you tell everybody what the Lord has done for you. I thought a lot about this, because I think if we were to sit here today and I said, ask the person next to you what the Lord has done for them, some of you would be tongue-tied. What has the Lord done for you? Oh, not much. He, he did save me. He did forgive me of all my sins. And he gave me the Holy Spirit. And Jesus came to live within me. And I was placed in the body of Christ. I'm a member of the body of Christ. And no matter where I go in the world, there are believers there that I can be a part of. He gave me, he gave me and you and all of us a spiritual gift to use to dispense his grace in people's lives. Has he done anything for you? Oh, you better believe it. He has blessed you beyond your ability to even describe. But you could start. You could stumble through one or two things, couldn't you? Well, I had my sins forgiven. I don't like to talk about it, but I was pretty bad. I was telling you about a pastor here in town who told me about his his testimony one day, and, and he started talking about where he had been And I thought, wow, he was in the pit, way down in the pit. And he says, that's why I knew I wasn't a Christian, because I wasn't a good person, and I knew only good persons are Christians. And then somebody gave him a Bible, he started reading the Bible, and he said, I discovered that God saves people that are not good persons. And we have any non-good persons here? There was one guy, two guys raised their hands, yeah. We know that he got us, he took us out of the pit, and he brought us to sit with princes. He, gave, he brought us to sit in the presence of Almighty God. Oh, he's saved us. He's done marvelous things. We're going to come to the Lord's table in a minute and, and break bread and take the Lord's, the Lord's table, which is a commemoration of what Jesus has done for us. We're going to take a piece of bread because he gave his, it represents his body, which was given to uh, for us. And we're going to drink from a cup, which is the new covenant in his blood. And it's just to commemorate. It's a simple little act to, to, to commemorate and to declare the truth. We believe the gospel. When you take communion, you're saying, I believe the gospel. I believe Jesus died for me, and he was buried and rose again. If you don't believe it, don't take communion. But if you believe it, take it gladly. It doesn't mean I've lived, I am the perfect Christian. That's not what this is saying. It's saying, I have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I have life now. So let me pray. And we'll, the men are going to come when I finish praying and pass out the elements. And then uh, we'll, we'll take communion together. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful for the, 
the kindness with which you have dealt with us, that you have brought us into this place of being disciples of Jesus Christ. We are so, so blessed to be able to follow Jesus. And Father, we also have this great blessing of being witnesses for Jesus, ambassadors. We get to speak for him. And sometimes it seems so scary to us, but we thank you, Father, for the opportunities to, in the most simple kind of way, tell people about the glorious, glorious experience of having our sins forgiven and coming into a relationship with God so that I can call him Father and know that he hears me. So I pray as we come to the table now that we could celebrate what Jesus has done for your glory because you sent him and you raised him from the dead to show us proof positive that his death on the cross was payment for our sins. We are so grateful for that. And now we want to celebrate it in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.